the Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book Four, Susan's Bridge. Chapter 15, The Cabin. A night without dreams felt as refreshing as a tropical vacation. From her debris hut on the high bluff, Susan could see the slate-gray silhouette of the tall hill she had slept on the night before. The hills inside of I-91 peaked up on either side. From the orange tinge to the sky, she knew that the sun would break over the horizon soon. She nibbled the last of the meat off the squirrel. The front legs and ribs did not provide much more than a taste. She broke the skeleton in half so it would fit into her pot of steaming water. Bone broth, with minced liver, heart, and kidney, would be her breakfast. It was time to pack while the broth steeped. A faint growl of motor noise echoed throughout the valley. It was hard to tell where it came from. It sounded distant and not getting louder. She guessed it came from the highway. There was no movement in the valley or the road below. There was some comfort to be taken in her remote position, but she knew she needed to keep moving. The slightly metallic mineral taste of liver broth made her left eye twitch as she drank. She was never fond of liver. Better to concentrate on the saltiness. She forced the last swallow down. She carefully stooped around the boulders, venturing a few dozen yards into the flat woods before indulging in a long wake-up stretch. As she stretched, a flash of light temporarily blinded her left eye. It was like a camera flash going off, but yellow. She froze. Anything unusual in the woods was suspect. There was no other flash. She moved left and right, up and down, to see if she could identify the source. Another glint made her blink. She found it. She stared for a moment. The source lay to the northwest, directly opposite her position from the rising sun. It was a reflection. A vehicle window was her first theory. Whatever it was, it didn't appear to be moving. She studied her map. The glint came from the top of the hill to her west. The map showed no structures or roads on that hilltop. Feeling both cautious and curious, she decided to check it out. Perhaps it was simply some junk that had been dumped, or an abandoned vehicle, but whatever it was, it might have something salvage-worthy. Charon had stressed the value of changing up one's heading from time to time to prevent pursuers from knowing where to intercept you. A side jaunt to the hilltop seemed like a good course change. The source of the glint turned out to be a modest cabin. From the pinkish color of the cedar siding, Susan guessed that the cabin was relatively new, too new for the mapmakers to know about. She sat behind a young pine, looking between its branches at the cabin. Was someone living in there? Was it abandoned? Remote cabins in the woods conjured up images of wackos in hockey masks leaping out of dark corners. She was in no mood for any of that. She moved the revolver to her coat pocket and slid off the safety of her rifle. She saw no signs of movement. The driveway looked like it had been driven on, but there were no vehicles. Was this the dead hunter's cabin? she wondered. 
If he was alone, where is his car? There was still no sign of movement in any of the windows. She backed away to approach the cabin from another angle. The front door was open a few inches. No one left their front door open in the winter. Even the ill-fated hunter would have closed the door after himself. Perhaps looters had been there. Perhaps it was their tires that packed down the driveway. Or maybe they stole his car, too. With no vehicles in sight and no sign of any movement inside, Susan decided to check out the cabin. Yes, yes, I'll be careful, she whispered to the jar in her pocket. The looters might have left something. She doubted there would be anything edible left. There might be an empty plastic bottle so she could carry more water. That would be good. Maybe there was some rope or a small metal pot. A cutting board would be nice for cutting up pine bark or quartering a squirrel. She advanced on the open door cautiously, in bursts and pauses. The stock of her rifle pressed against her shoulder. The muzzle was aimed down slightly, so she could see over the sights easily, yet raise it to fire in a half second. Her finger hovered over the trigger as she took slow and silent steps up the porch stairs. Glancing left and right through the narrow doorway opening, she saw no one, but did see debris on the floor. Boxes, wadded paper, and an overturned kitchen chair told of a ransacking. She pushed the door open slowly with her foot, ready to jump back at the slightest irregularity. Her breathing had sped up, despite her efforts to stay calm and focused. After a quick glance to the left, seeing no one along the latch-side wall, she rushed in, pressed herself up against the wall, and quickly panned the room with the muzzle. No one. She blew out a sigh of relief through her nose. If this was the hunter's cabin, maybe he's got more bullets for his gun hidden someplace. The living room did not look vandalized. Books still sat on shelves. Drapes still hung on rods. Every drawer from a small roll-top desk sat open, but the desktop still had a clutter of papers. The looters had already been through the drawers, so she only gave them a thorough peeking without moving anything. Paper clips, pens, a stapler, nothing she wanted to carry around. She stepped carefully over the debris and the trash, making no sounds. She recalled how Martin hid money in a thick book on his shelves. She scanned the hunter's bookshelf. One fat volume caught her eye. It sat on a top shelf, surrounded by pulpy paperbacks. You look out of place up there, she thought. Standing on tiptoes, she slowly pulled down the old leather-bound book. She thought it might be one of those hollowed-out book-safe things, but it was just a thick old book. Behind it, however, sat a small cardboard box. Ten bullets, a twenty-dollar bill, and a pack of matches. Two out of three of those were useful. The new rounds fit the hunter's rifle. She pocketed the rounds and the matches, but left the twenty on the desk. No one used dollars any longer. If the looters had missed the fat book, they might have overlooked some hidden food in the kitchen. She carefully stepped around boxes and the toppled chair to check out the kitchen. Her silent walking in the woods was useful in the cluttered cabin, too. The muzzle got a good look at the room before she entered it. The kitchen was a mess, but empty. The doors to the other rooms were closed. 
That was good to see. She would tolerate no jumping hockey masks. Other than an empty water bottle, she saw nothing in the cupboards or pantry. The kitchen table was littered with wrappers and plastic cups. She took two of the cups. The floor around the table was a debris field of MRE packaging. Soldiers? Maybe it hadn't been looters, exactly. Were they just checking out the cabin for people living outside of the cantons and decided to have lunch? Had they brought some prisoners there for interrogation? That thought uncorked a vial of rage. She pulled her rifle closer to her shoulder. Any green shapes jumping out of doorways were going to be dealt with quickly. She felt a bump in the floorboards. It was a feeling, not a sound. Someone or something was moving. Movement near her knee caught her eye. The section of board in the lower cabinet door pulled back. Someone was peeking out to see if the room was clear. Susan carefully moved back a half step to be sure that she was not visible to the hole in the door. After a long pause, the board refilled the hole. Susan quickly assessed her path out of the kitchen and out the front door. It would take only a second. No hockey mask jumping out of a cupboard was going to get her. She took a couple of silent steps to move closer to the door and shorten her escape path even more. While she stood between the kitchen and the living room, a soft scraping sound arose from the cabinet. The kitchen cabinet, which was at the end beside the oven, began to move. Susan could feel her heart racing, but her breathing slowed to nearly nothing. Someone was coming up from below the cabin floor. Her first impulse was to run into the woods as fast as she could. Her second thought was that doing so would give her only a short lead on whoever it was. Did she want to be the victim or the hunter? As much as it unnerved her to stand her ground, she reasoned that however many people were below the cabin, the trap door beneath the cabinet would be a bottleneck. Only one at a time could come up. She had ten rounds in her rifle, four more in the hunter's rifle. She could take out fourteen, though it seemed unlikely that guardsmen were hiding beneath the small cabin. She would force them to surrender supplies, food, water, ammo, and weapons. Then she would lock them in and give herself a better lead. What if the moving cabinet was not the only way up from below? Susan quickly glanced at each interior door. No movement. No other piece of furniture was moving. The cabinet might be the only entry. The fact that there was no vehicle outside suggested that it wasn't the guardsman below the floor. The cabinet lurched open a few more degrees. It was hinged to the wall. Perhaps it was the looters. She would do the same, demand supplies, and lock them in. The opening in the floor became visible. She knelt down, bracing her elbow on her knee. The front sight was centered on where the floor opening would be once the cabinet was fully swung away. A barely visible hand continued to push the cabinet aside. She trained the sight on the dark rectangle in the floor. A blue stocking cap appeared, followed by shaggy brown hair. A boy, perhaps eleven or twelve, stood up to his waist in the opening. He looked into the back of the kitchen and then panned around. When his gaze found Susan's eye behind the sights of a rifle, he froze. Looters come in all ages, she thought. The boy didn't strike Susan as a hoodlum. 
He had the look of fashionably crafted rebellion without effort, not the predatory eye of a gang member. Nevertheless, Susan kept the front sight centered between his eyes. Um, Mom? The boy didn't take his eyes off the end of Susan's rifle. What is it? asked a woman's voice. Are they coming back? Uh, no. The boy didn't move his wide eyes from the barrel of Susan's gun. He did swallow hard, however. Uh, but there's someone up here, uh, and she's got a gun. Oh, my God, gasped the mother. Get up out of there, Susan said in a gruff voice. She thought it might sound commanding. Nervous was how she felt, but she didn't want to sound that way. She didn't take her eye off the sights. Uh, she's got a gun aimed at my head, and she's telling me to come out. Do what she says, blurted the unseen mother. Look, she said louder, we don't want any trouble. If you're a looter, we don't have anything left to take. I'm not a looter, Susan said. She did not relax her aim. Get out of the hole. Sit beside it. As the boy climbed out, Susan backed up a few steps so that she could quickly shift her aim from the boy to whoever came out of the hole next. How many of you are down there? Uh, my mom and my sister, said the boy. Come on out, called Susan. I'm not a looter, and I'm not here to hurt anyone. I'm just looking for food. Uh, we don't have any food, said the boy. His rounded cheeks argued otherwise. I'm not looking to steal your food, Susan said. I just need a little to travel on. A very blonde head appeared in the floor opening. I'm coming up, said the mother. Please don't shoot. She climbed up and held her hands up. Susan motioned with the rifle for the woman to sit beside her son. She was a petite woman who could be Susan's age. Many thin wrinkles from middle age and worry had tempered what would otherwise pass for a cheerleader's face. The last one, too, said Susan. A darker blonde head of straight hair appeared in the hole. Wide eyes beneath dark and frightened eyebrows peeked over the edge. Come on out, honey, said the mom, with that soothing tone mothers employ. Come sit beside me here. It'll be okay. She patted the floorboards. The daughter looked to be about fourteen or fifteen. Despite the thick down jacket, her stick-thin wrists and narrow face bespoke of a very slender girl within. Susan felt bad about being the cause of such fear, but she had to be careful. Close the hatch, Susan said. She pointed with her eyes at the hinged cabinet. The mother pulled it closed. Susan had no way of knowing if the boy lied and there were more people down below. Three was more than she wanted to deal with, as it was. I'm not here to steal your food, Susan said. We don't have any food, said the boy. Aha, uh -huh, Susan scoffed slightly. You look pretty well fed for having no food. It's not nice to lie. It's not nice to point guns at people, blurted the boy. His mother pulled at his shoulders to keep him seated. Fair enough, said Susan. I don't want any trouble either. I thought this place was abandoned. All I want is some cooking oil. If you have some to spare, I'd really appreciate it, and then I'll be gone. Susan knew that she could subsist for a long time in the woods on pine fries and the occasional squirrel. Some oil would help keep those times when special chicken fat was not available for frying pine fries. 
cooking oil? The mother blinked at Susan, as if she had asked for everyone's left shoe. Yeah, olive oil, canola, shortening, whatever. Anything like that. I'm not looking to take it all, just some. Hey, that's my dad's rifle. The boy pointed to the bolt-action rifle slung over Susan's back. How did you get that? What did you do with my dad? I didn't do anything to your dad, Susan said, without her gruff voice. I found this on the slope, out there. She dropped her front sight slightly to look into the mother's eyes. I found uh, him at the bottom of the valley yesterday. He had been dead for several days. The mother gasped, covered her mouth with her hands, and looked like she was crying, but no tears came. Susan knew that look. There must have been many tears shed when her husband failed to return for many days. Susan's statement only confirmed what the wife already knew in her heart. That's my dad's gun. It's not yours. Give it to me, demanded the boy. Give you a loaded gun? Susan stared at the boy with narrowed eyes. I don't think so. She moved the lowered barrel back toward the boy to remind him that he was not in a position to be making demands. His glance at the muzzle suggested that he understood and sat back down. I tell you what, I'll trade you this rifle for some cooking oil, Susan said. Do you have any or not? If not, I'm out of here, with the rifle. She really didn't want the rifle, but she guessed that they had more supplies than they admitted to, and the boy clearly wanted his dad's rifle. The three of them looked at each other, communicating with little eye movements, small head shakes, nods, and micro-shrugs. We do have some cooking oil, said the mother. It's down below. Great. Have your daughter go get it. Susan thought the girl looked like the least likely one to try anything foolish. The daughter glanced quickly at her mother with even wider eyes. The mother nodded gently and patted her on the arm. The girl pushed the cabinet aside and slipped down the hole without taking her eyes off of Susan. After some faint rummaging around, the daughter returned with a half-pint plastic bottle of canola oil. She set it on the floor in front of the three family members. It was too close to them for Susan to feel comfortable about picking it up herself. She didn't want it thrown at her, as that would risk breaking the bottle and take her finger off the trigger. Set it over here, please. Susan pointed to the floor in front of her. She took two more steps back. I'll leave your dad's rifle against a tree when I leave. The daughter shook her head vigorously. She was not going to move the bottle. With a well-practiced, sullen look, the son picked up the oil, walked it over, and set it down on the floor. As he turned to go sit down again, he froze at the window and gasped. They're coming! Oh, no! So soon? The mother and daughter rushed to the window to see, too. Whoever they were... They were more of a threat than someone in front of them with a gun. Susan peered over the boy's shoulder. Through the gaps in the trees, she could see down in the valley. Between the tree trunks, she could see a tiny, tan-colored vehicle coming up the valley road. National Guard. At the speed they were traveling, she guessed that it might be a little while before they made their way up the hill to the cabin. I didn't get the water, complained the boy. There's no time now. How long before they get here? Susan asked. Well, if you hadn't delayed us by robbing us, snapped the mother, we, we could have gotten ready. Now we'll have no water. How was I supposed to know? Susan snapped back. The approach of the guardsman had her on edge, too. 
Maybe I could run out and get at least one bucket of water. And it wasn't robbery, Susan felt only a twinge of remorse. The oil was a negotiated settlement. Being surprised and outnumbered required armed caution. It didn't constitute robbery. Holding a rifle in one hand, she quickly slung her backpack around in order to stuff in the new bottle of oil. We're almost out of food, Mom, said the girl. What if they stay longer this time? We'll just have to eat less. And what happens when that runs out? asked the boy. We'll have to give up, and they'll send us to the city. His last word was filled with dread. Oh, what should I do? I don't know, I don't know. The mother pulled at her hair and looked frantically around the kitchen. Should she hide with us in the cellar? The girl pointed to Susan. No way, said Susan. I'm not staying in the house with any guardsman. She hefted on her backpack. Thanks for the oil, and this was not a robbery. Then give me my dad's rifle. Still not giving you a gun while I'm here. I'll leave it out by the big rocks, Susan pointed toward her hut. Best I can do. Sorry about freaking you out. I've got to go. She ran out the front door. The family's anxiety and confusion tugged at her conscience. They'll just have to figure it out for themselves, she muttered as she ran. I've got to keep moving. Susan Crouch ran along the ridge, trying to catch glimpses of the vehicle, and yet not be seen. The Humvee ambled along in no particular hurry. There was some comfort in that. From what she remembered of her map, the valley road looped around to the west of the cabin's peak. The cabin's unmapped driveway probably intersected the road near the loop. At their casual driving pace, it would take the guardsmen eight or ten minutes to reach the cabin. Susan planned to swing back near her rustic hut, drop off the rifle, and cut back north. The map showed a shallow rise that might shield her from view from the cabin. Clanking noises behind her startled her. The guardsman couldn't have gotten behind her so soon. She spun around with her rifle at her shoulder. The mother, son, and daughter each slid to a stop when Susan faced them. Each of the three stood bundled in winter wear and wore backpacks. "'What are you doing?' Susan demanded. "'Following you,' said the mother. "'Well, stop it. Yeah, we have to.' "'Ah!' Susan threw up her arms and turned and ran. "'I don't have time for this. I don't want them following me. Four people will be a lot easier to spot.' She turned north near her hut, running in as much of a sprint as she could manage under load. The family ran behind her, though falling behind. "'Stop following me!' Susan snapped over her shoulder. "'We can't go back.' said the mother as she ran. They'll be there. So go a different way. Susan flailed her arm to the east. I'm traveling alone. She crouched ran along what she expected to be the backside of the rise. The family continued to follow her, matching her crouch run posture. There was a modest rise in the land, just like the map said, but the cabin sat much higher. The rise wouldn't shield her. Worse yet, the pine trees thinned out. The widely scattered and totally naked maple trunks would provide no concealment. Susan stopped before entering the sparse zone. The family bunched up behind her, panting. These people are going to get themselves seen, she muttered to the jar in her pocket. Susan glanced around. She would have to go east, farther down the gentle slope, until the cabin was obscured. Susan took a step and then froze. The sound of bees began. Drone! she blurted out. Back this way! She ran toward her debris hut. She had to hide the family, too, or their presence would give her away as well. 
get inside, quick, quick, quick. As each of the family rounded the boulders, she pushed them under the log and pine branch roof. She ducked under, too, and unfurled her drone tarp across the opening. Quickly, she lashed its straps to the first rafter log. The family huddled in each other's arms near the back of the hut. Susan sat near the front, peeking over the tarp and listening intently. The drone was behind them and not traveling very quickly. Usually the drones were flown in twilight so as to spot people with infrared. They also usually flew fairly quickly to the border before slowing to patrol speed. I bet they're looking for escaped longbow people, she thought. The buzz finally grew fainter. That was close, Susan addressed the family. How did you know this, this shelter was here? asked the mother, still out of breath. Because I built it, yesterday. I didn't plan to come back to it, but I'm glad I left it up. Susan tipped her head to listen. They all listened to the silence for a few minutes. What do they do? the mother whispered and pointed in the direction of the drone. They look for people. When the drone sees somebody, the soldiers come and capture them. I don't want to go to the cantons, the boy whined. The daughter's eyes grew wider at the notion. What can we do? the mother implored. Nothing right now, Susan whispered back. The thing is, they didn't used to fly them during the day. They'll be using regular cameras, easier to hide from. Why are they doing that? How do you know so much about the drones? the mother asked. Susan quickly replayed memories of her drone experiences. There was no quick answer. It's a long story. Is it gone? the mother asked. For a while, since we're near the launch site, I'd say maybe twenty minutes before it comes back. So, we wait. Don't want to be caught out in the open when it returns. You said you found Joe? Yeah, my husband's body. Oh, where is he? In the valley, directly below us. It looked like he fell from up here while hunting. The rifle was halfway down, and no, I'm not going to give it to you. Not yet, anyhow, Susan said to the boy. From what I could tell, it looked like he, uh, hit his head on a rock at the bottom. Oh, whined the mother. I, I just have to see him. What? There's a truck full of guardsmen in your cabin. If they see you, they'll haul you down to one of the cantons, or worse. Susan cringed at the prospect for an attractive petite blonde. They won't see us, said the boy. You can't see this slope from the cabin. I want to go see my dad, too. I want to give him a proper burial. Proper burial? The ground is frozen. Susan had to curb her volume. And he's frozen to it, she said in a harsh whisper. I don't care, snipped the boy. You said we had twenty minutes. He's my dad, and I want to make sure he's buried. Susan rolled her eyes in frustration. They're going to get themselves captured she said to her pocket. The mother and son looked at each other, unsure of whom Susan was talking to. We'll be very careful, said the mother. I just can't leave without at least seeing him and saying goodbye. This slope might be out of view from the cabin, but there could be other soldiers driving on the road. They'd see you. And there's still the drone. You've got less than twenty minutes before it comes back. If it circles around you, you'll know it's seen you. You're toast. If I hear it circling around you, I'm gone. They're not capturing me again. The mother and son looked at each other and then nodded. We're going. The mother and son rushed out of the hut and down the slope. 
They sounded like boulders crashing down the slope. Oh, for crying out loud, Susan muttered as she shook her head. She didn't like the idea of moving around, outside, while drones were flying. But if the returning drone discovered the pair, she might have to. The soldiers would be busy heading for them, down in the valley. She would bolt. A cold wave flashed between her shoulders. What if they talk? The mother and son could tell the soldiers about the debris hut. Susan knew that she might have to bolt at the first sign of trouble. While scanning the hut for any unpacked gear, Susan noticed that the girl remained seated in the back of the shelter. She had her knees tucked up close to her chest in a seated fetal position. Her face still had the same wide, fearful eyes and sad expression. "'You're not going to?' Susan asked. The girl shook her head. Well, "'Why not?' Susan would have preferred if the whole family had gone and not seen her leave. The girl ruined the purity of her escape. I don't want to see my dad that way. Well, makes sense, I guess. The girl nodded and looked to be on the edge of tears. Susan felt bad about stoking the girl's fears more than they already were. She thought she ought to buffer her crankiness. After all, the mother and son had not been discovered, yet... She reasoned that she had a few minutes to be kind. Look, I'm sorry if I scared you back in the cabin. I'm not going to hurt you or your family. I'm just trying to get back home when I came across your cabin. I had no idea you were in there. My name is Susan, by the way. What's yours? Aaron? Ah, nice name. I never knew an Aaron before. That makes you the first. Susan tried to sound upbeat. She hoped a little conversation would soothe the girl but she didn't look any less stressed. Susan tried again. How long were you guys under the cabin? I don't know. It felt like forever. Uh, this was the third time. The first time, Blake saw the soldiers coming up the road, just like they did now. Dad told us to go down into the safe room. Dad said they would take us away to the city if they found us. The soldiers stayed for two whole days. When they left, oh, the cabin was a total mess, and they took Dad's car. Oh, he was so mad. And they ate a lot of our food. Dad had some hidden and moved more supplies down to the cellar. Good thing, too. The soldiers came back after a week or so. Oh, that sounds awful. I know I wouldn't like it. You were hidden pretty good, though. I had no idea you guys were under there until Blake started coming up. He's such a doofus. Her tragic eyebrows knit in anger for a moment. Mom tells him to be quiet, but he never listens. Susan smiled. She noticed Aaron's tragic eyebrows relaxed. Some conversation was helping. Your cabin looks kind of new. Uh, your dad built it? Aaron nodded. A couple of years ago. We vacationed up here last summer. Susan was feeling impatient. She looked at her watch. Fifteen minutes. A major fork in the road was coming. Either mother and son would return before the drone, or they would be discovered very soon. She would be departing carefully after the drone returned to the cabin, or she would be running like crazy while soldiers captured the pair. In the meantime, she could try to soothe Aaron. Where did you live before? Danbury. My dad worked in the city. I mean, like New York. He said the cabin in the mountains would be our safe place if things went bad. Sometimes he talked about the bad things, but Mom didn't like it, so he didn't talk about it much. When the power went out, he said it was the bad things happening. He packed up the car and drove us up here. 
Well, he was right to get you out of the city, Susan said with a slow nod. I hear it's gotten pretty bad. Aaron nodded. We heard that on the radio, the governor's orders and all. Dad thought we could just hide from everything. He, he just, he didn't think it was going to be for so long. Our food was getting low. Oh, Blake eats a lot. That's why he went out to hunt. The soldiers came back, eh, but he didn't. And you and your mom and Blake hid in the safe room again? Yeah, but it wasn't made for living in, just hiding for a little while. It was so dark and cramped down there. We had to be so quiet all the time, and there was no water. That's why Blake came up when you saw him. His job was to take buckets to the well and refill the barrel in the cellar. Susan noticed the eyebrows were drifting back toward tragic again. A change of topic was needed. I noticed you guys each have a backpack, said Susan. Your dad's idea? Uh-huh. Dad made packs for each of us in case we had to run for it or something. Well, what's in your pack? I don't know, Aaron shrugged. Not knowing what was in her own backpack seemed too ludicrous to not comment on, but Susan let it go. A friend of mine made up a pack for me, too. Should we see what's in yours now? Susan thought the discovery activity would help distract Aaron from her fears. Nevertheless, Susan positioned herself near the opening for a quick exit, if necessary. Aaron swung over her backpack. She pulled out a folding knife, a coil of paracord, and a red nylon pouch, a first aid kit. This looks like some food. She pulled out three packs of freeze-dried meals. Susan tried not to stare. Pavlov noticed the sumptuous photos on the packages. She closed her eyes and looked away. Uh, what else is in there? Gloves, socks, a water bottle, and some tablet thingies, and this little pouch with some matches, and, and this. A ferro rod. I have one, too. It's like a flint and steel, said Susan. It makes sparks to start campfires. Oh, didn't your dad show you how to use it? No, he always did the fires. I hear them coming back, said Susan. At least, I hope it's them. It's noisy enough. Susan pulled her rifle around to the low ready position. The mother and son ducked under the tarp. They looked very tired and winded as they dragged themselves into the shelter. I assume you found him, Susan said flatly. It still felt like it was a fool's errand and not worth the risk but it wasn't her husband. The mother nodded while she leaned on her arms, trying to catch her breath. I buried him, said Blake to his sister. I had to take rocks out of the stream. Man, are my hands cold. He put his hands inside his shirt, but jumped at his own touch. But I did it. I got Dad buried. Susan shook her head. She had been so worried about disturbing the body, lest trackers know someone came through that way, now it was as obvious as a pile of stones. Their trail back up the slope was probably obvious, too. The sound of bees cut short their conversation. The drone returned, this time passing over the valley as it headed toward the cabin. Susan caught a glimpse of it as she peered over the tarp. No, don't rush to look up. Susan held out her arm to block Blake. First rule of drones is to stay still. It flew out of sight behind the boulder. The buzzing stopped. Okay, then, Susan relaxed a little bit. Now that the drone is back, I'm going to be on my way. She took down the drone tarp and rolled it up. 
"'What do you mean?' asked a mother. "'You're, you're going?' "'I was passing through when I found your cabin, and I'm going to keep passing through.' "'But what about us?' "'What about you?' Susan adjusted her pack straps. "'We don't,' Susan silenced the mother with a raised hand. The puttering hum of a generator began. "'That's odd,' she said. "'Don't like the sound of that.' She slowly peeked around the edge of the large boulder to get a glimpse toward the cabin. The sound of bees began again. "'Gosh, shoot!' Susan quickly ducked inside and slapped the boulder. "'What? They have more than one drone. It was always just one drone before. They're ramping things up. Who knows how many they brought with them. They're recharging batteries with a generator. Must be planning on more flights. "'What does that mean?' asked the mother. "'What do we do?' "'I don't know,' Susan waved her off to be quiet. "'Just hold on. Let me think. I, I need a minute to think.' The drone buzzed east, down the hill, faster than the first one had. Each of them tracked it with their eyes, as if they could see through the pine branch roof. "'They're looking for us more seriously,' Susan muttered. "'We closed everything up. They shouldn't know that we were there,' said the mother. "'Not you,' said Susan. "'At least I don't think they're looking for you.' I meant a different us. Uh, never mind, it's a long story. Susan turned to peer over the tarp. She spoke to her pocket. Charon said the day cameras weren't as good. It's easier to hide from them. So why are they doing it? If it's not as good. Are you talking to me? The mother asked. No, scoffed Susan. Now keep quiet. I'm trying to think. The mother looked at Blake. He shrugged. Aaron shook her head and shrugged. More flights, but less quality? Why do more that's less? Unless... Ah, oh, you might be right, she patted her pocket. They must think they're running out of time to find anyone to parade. Parade? What are you talking about? The mother sounded impatient. Do you know what's going on? Susan shook her head in annoyance at the interruption. They're looking for people to capture and parade so that they don't look so bad because we got the trucks across. Trucks? Susan's shoulders slumped. Explaining Operation Longbow was just too complicated. Long story, Susan resumed looking across the valley and muttered to her pocket. I wonder if it's because the ground patrols didn't catch anybody, and they're worried whoever else is out there will be gone in a couple of days. Who's out there? asked the mother. Longbow people, Susan said impatiently. What does that mean? Oh, just... Never mind, it's a long story. You keep saying that. Well, it's because it is. Now shush, please, I need to think. Susan resumed muttering to herself or to her pocket. Charon said it's tricky to fly those things. The army doesn't let just anyone do it. Specialist stuff. What are the odds they have only one pilot guy? Might have more drones, but only one pilot. If he's flying rounds all day, he'll need a break. Gotta sleep sometime, right? Maybe he'll sleep at night, since he flew all day. Nighttime might be the time to make my break. This chapter expands a bit on the notion of bugging out to a cabin in the hills. This little vignette touched on the problem that can come when only one person in the family is the prepper. In this case, Joe had all the prepper skills, but he died out in the woods in an accident. The family he left behind had little idea of what to do about much of anything. In this case, Susan is the unwilling inheritor of Joe's mistakes. 
This time of year is getting busy around the homestead. The sap is flowing in the maple trees, and it's a bit of a challenge keeping up with it. We're a small, hobby-scale operation. No thousands of feet of tubing bringing the sap to a central location. No, we're doing it the old-fashioned way, going out twice a day to drain our gallon jugs. The trees have been producing well enough that we have to keep the sap boiling almost continually all day. That's about ten gallons of sap a day that we're boiling. With these sunny days, the trees have been producing twelve gallons or more per day, so I'm getting behind. As a little bonus feature for my Siege Club members and my patrons, I posted a brief audio file of me gathering sap from the red maples along the stream. Just something to share so you know what it sounds like. If you'd like to become a patron or a Siege Club member, check out my Patreon page, search for Mick Rowland, or my Buy Me a Coffee page at buymeacoffee slash mick Roland. Links are in the show notes. Thanks for listening.